Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want you to listen now to this passage, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. This passage has intrigued me for many years. You'll notice he speaks to little children, he speaks to young men, and he speaks to fathers. He speaks to those at the very beginning of life, those, if you please, in what we would call developmental stages or young adulthood, and then those who are mature and established. And I want to make a few preliminary observations from this passage of what a healthy church life looks like. And the first thing I think we can learn from these verses is that in a healthy church, there is no generation gap. You'll notice that there are people of all ages mentioned here, and I believe that was the case in the early church. You have little children, young men, and fathers. You have people across the entire spectrum. Interestingly, there's a beautiful passage in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 8, verse 4, that says, when the Lord is blessing his people, here is the situation that you will see. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. I dare say that is a lovely scene. Old men and old women with their staff in their hands for very age, while little children are playing in the streets thereof. You know, I've been to some old Baptist meetings before where the kids were running and playing outside and the old folks were sitting around the fellowship hall talking scripture, and I thought, this is Zechariah 8, 4, and 5 being played out right in front of my eyes. Now, that's a healthy situation for a church. You know, even little children were part of the early church. Jesus had said in Mark 10, 14, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Notice he didn't say that they are the future of the church, but he said they are the present. Of such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is comprised of little ones and certainly their humble attitude and childlike faith. Even now, you remember in John 21, Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep, but he also said, feed my lambs. And so the early church had people across the spectrum of ages. The second observation I think we can glean from this interesting passage in 1 John chapter 2 is that the early church practiced family integrated worship or age integrated. Now we don't segregate the grown-ups from the children in the Old Baptist Church. 
but whole families worship together. And my friends, I believe that's biblical. I don't see any biblical precedent or pattern for putting the children in one class and letting them color with coloring books while the grown-ups actually hear the Word of God. In fact, the Bible pattern seems to be age-integrated and family-integrated worship. And that's one of the wonderful features, I believe, of the Old Baptist Church. You know, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, Paul tells Titus to speak the things that become sound doctrine, and he says, speak to the aged men and tell them that they are to be sober and of good behavior, and speak to the aged women that they are to be grave and modest, and teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. Then the young men, that they are to be strong and disciplined. Notice all these groups are addressed in Titus chapter 2. Aged men, aged women, young women, young men, they're all there. And the Apostle Paul, even in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, is writing a letter to the church, and he says, children, in the first verse, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, if children were not in the early church, then he would not have addressed them in that letter. Can you imagine one of the deacon brethren standing up in conference and saying, we got a letter from Paul, and let me read it to you. And when he came to chapter 6, Paul says to the little children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's the first commandment with promise. And then he turns around and says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they should become discouraged. He talks about parents and children. And it's interesting that the early church consisted of people across the demographic of ages, social status, economic status, and so forth. I ran across a quote one time about the fact that the early church practiced family integrated worship. It said, of all the institutions on the earth, the church should set the standard for bonding families together rather than splitting them apart through age segregated worship and programs. Segregating families, that is separating families for the purpose of worship is a relatively new idea in the sweep of church history. Children learn to worship by observing their elders in worship. If we desire to bring forth godly young people in our churches, we must be prepared to suffer little children in our midst. Now you say, now Brother Mike, that's just the thing. Little children make a lot of noise. Well, suffer the little children. That is tolerate it. That's what Jesus said. He used the word suffer on purpose. It's worth it, my friends. And though you may be a young parent here, and it's hard to teach your kids to be quiet and to be still, may I suggest that all the effort you put into that right now is going to pay big dividends in the long run. In fact, it only takes one or two times of carrying them out. You know, they say noisy children are like good intentions. They should be carried out immediately. <laughs> and though it's embarrassing to get up and to walk out with them, I'll tell you, if you take them out and you, you know, talk to them sternly, and they suffer a little consequence for misbehavior, they will soon learn that that's not a place they want to go. Now, if you take them out, during church and you let them run around and play, they're going to want to go out every few minutes, every time you assemble for worship. If you take them out and let them know that's not somewhere they want to be, <laughs> and you bring them back in and sit back down. And if you have to do that five or six times in a worship service, it's worth it because it will just be a short period of time before they'll learn to be still. You know, I've heard of teachers that have told 
parents that, that were old Baptists that your children are the most well-behaved in my classroom. They know how to sit still, they know how to focus, they know how to do their work and to keep their mouths closed. And the reason they know that is because they've learned that in church. And sometimes it just takes a gentle tap on the lips to say, uh, or perhaps the visual image of the Board of Education. <laughs> you know, I mean, my mom used to carry, you know, the, in fact, the hardware man, once he figured out why she was taking these little paint stirrers, you know, these little paint paddles, then he finally banned her. He said, I'm not giving you any more of those. But you know, when she had one in her purse, when we'd go to church, she'd stick one in there early on. And uh, all she had to do is draw it out and set it down on her lap, and we knew we better straighten up right quick. You know, it's amazing kids aren't more confused than they are because they start out and you say, I want them to sleep in church so I, I can listen. And about the time they learn that pretty well, now you're wanting them to stay awake <laughs> and uh, to listen. But I dare say, dear friends, that that's one of the challenges old Baptists face because we believe in whole families worshiping together. But you know, when children see their parents worship, it teaches them how to worship. And they will want to grow up to be like their parents, and that's the way the Lord designed the church to function. I write unto you little children. I write unto you young men. I write unto you fathers. The Apostle John understands the importance of family-integrated worship. And you may say, well, they don't understand much. Those little ones, they don't understand much. They get more than you realize. And you know what happens? You know that verse in Deuteronomy 32, my doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew. God has two ways of watering his creation, through a rainfall or through that gentle dew that just distills, it just seems to appear. You know, dew doesn't make a lot of noise, does it? If you stay out too, too late or you go out too early in the morning, you know, it's not long before you realize that I'm, I'm wet. When did that happen? It hasn't been raining, and the dew just sort of settles on you imperceptibly, and that's the way it works with these little children. His doctrine drops as the rain. It's wonderful when we have a rainfall. But, you know, we also need that subtle, imperceptible settling of the dew upon us, and those little ones, they will pick up more by osmosis in the house of God than you realize they are. In fact, it wasn't long before my girls would hear something. We went to a meeting one time. I think it wasn't long after we moved here. And you may remember our girls were real small when we moved here. They've about grown up on us. I mean, it's happened before I knew it. But we went to a meeting, and one preacher got up, and he was saying something, and I think it was Evie, that looked up at Lori and said, that's not right, is it? I mean, she was, I mean, she was a little theologian in the making. So this passage teaches that there was no generation gap in the early church and that the early church practiced age-integrated together worship. And I think this passage also teaches that a healthy church consists of people at all different levels or stages of spiritual growth and development. Notice to each category he gives a different word of affirmation or word of counsel or advice. I write unto you little children, he says, because you've known the Father. I've written unto you fathers because you've known him that is from the beginning. And by the way, that's a reference back to the first verse of 1 John, where he says, that which was from the beginning. 
which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes and we've looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. You know, John was one of the original disciples of Jesus. And he was an eyewitness of Jesus. He was right there with him from the beginning. He says, you fathers, you've known him that is from the beginning. That is, you are original disciples. You older folks in the church, John says, you have a long history with Jesus Christ. Your experience. Now, some of these young folks that have been born since then, they don't know what you know through firsthand experience, but they've heard about it. But he said, I'll write unto you because you have known him with an experiential knowledge that is from the beginning. And then he writes to the young men and says, I write unto you young men because you're strong. You've overcome the wicked one, that is the devil, and the word of God abides in you. Think of it in terms of a, of a military, of an army. You know, you've got your new recruits that are going to basic training or boot camp, depending on whether you're Army or Navy or Marine. They're the new recruits. They're green and they're skinny. Or, as the case may be, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, they need to lose a little. They're not in shape and they don't know a whole lot about warfare or military strategy and tactics. And uh, they've got to be put through the ringer. They're the little children, if you please. Then the fathers are the veteran soldiers, you know. They're the ones that have been in the heat of battle, and they are experienced, and they have the medals and the scars to prove it. And then the young men are the ones on the front lines right now. They're the ones that are sharp and agile and trained and I want to say, dear friends, that there are all different stages in an army, and so there are in the church. People at different levels of spiritual growth and spiritual development. And the final observation, preliminary-wise, I want to make is that the same gospel meets the needs of each stage that is mentioned here. He didn't say the little children need coloring books and crayons, and the young people need campfires and kumbaya (laughs) and the older folks need bible studies he didn't say that the same gospel meets the needs of all now may i say when i deliver a sermon i know that everybody in the congregation is not going to get every point that i make you know jesus said feed my sheep somebody the old preacher said he didn't say feed my giraffes He didn't say bring the food up here to where only the academics and the intelligentsia can understand it, but he said put it down on a level where people can grasp it and understand. But I believe if I'm preaching the whole counsel of God and I'm careful to try to communicate, there will be something for everybody in the course of that sermon. You know, the few loaves and fish from this pulpit, if Jesus multiplies it, it can feed a multitude. And there will be some leftover in the baskets. But we don't change the message just because people are at different levels. We do want to express it tenderly and clearly, but yet you say, well, you, you mentioned justification. Don't you know these little children don't know what justification is? They may not right now. But if we explain it like we're capable of, if we put effort into it and try to tell them justification is the courtroom idea. That's what happens in a court. Well, they're starting to get some clues here, you see. And in a courtroom, when somebody is declared to be not guilty, or they are vindicated, they are declared, you're innocent. 
you know, they've been on trial, but the sentence is passed, not guilty. That's what justification is. And you see, if we make the effort to explain it like that, even the little children can start to learn and grasp. What about redemption? Redemption means to liberate, to set free by paying a price. It's the slave's term. You know, here's a slave on the auction block who's about to be sold, and somebody says, I want to pay his whole fare. And then as soon as he's bought the slave, he says, I liberate you. You're free. You're a free man. That's redemption in the Bible. What is reconciliation? It's two people who are having a fight who are now brought and reconciled. They have peace now. You see, these Bible doctrines are picture words. So it's the preacher's task to try to figure out how to communicate that in a way that the youngest can understand, but they may not get it all. Some of us older folks may not even get it all. But here's the point. As we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord, we should become more mature. And that's the thought. That's the thought here. Now, last week, I spoke from John 17, 17, which says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That was Jesus' prayer to his Father. And as our time ran out, we were distinguishing between the two main categories of sanctification taught in the Bible positional or eternal that Jesus died on the cross and through his one offering he forever perfected them that are sanctified by the will of God we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all that is you are already holy as far as your home in heaven is concerned if you were to die right now my friends and you never grew another step spiritually speaking in this world you never matured in your understanding or in your conduct or in your behavior, yet, my friends, you'd go right into the presence of God because the blood of Jesus Christ is all you need. He is your sanctification. He's your holiness. But there's also a phase of sanctification in the Bible that is what we would call practical sanctification. And the best way to describe that is, in Peter's words, growing in grace. He uses the metaphor of spiritual growth. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, I want to ask you today, are you growing spiritually? Are you at the same point today that you were 15 years ago? Have you ever noticed the hymns in our hymn book? Some of them are really simple, like, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And I like to sing those songs. If that's the only song you ever sing and you never sing, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. A song about God's providence, you know. Now, I understand people have different preferences. But, you know, when I was first coming along, I liked, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I've heard preachers say, that's enough. If that's all you know, that's enough. Well, I understand what they're saying. But I hope that you can grow a little bit beyond it. Now, you won't ever grow completely beyond it. For instance, what about the ABCs? If I were to ask you mature people here this morning to recite your ABCs, would you be offended? If I were to say to one of these brethren here, brother, stand up and sing the ABC song for this congregation. They'd say, I'm not going to do it. That's beneath me. Of course I can say my ABCs. What about, can you count to ten? If I were to ask one of you grown-ups to count to ten, show the people you can count to ten, you'd say, absolutely not. That is way beneath. That was a long, long time ago that I learned that. 
And so we do graduate beyond the ABCs and the one, two, threes, but you never quit using them, do you? Every article you read in the newspaper, you're using your ABCs. Every letter you write to a loved one or email or text message or every contract you sign or whatever you do in business, my friends, you're using your ABCs and your one, two, threes, right? When you drive down the road, you're using your ABCs to read traffic signs. And you're using your one, two, threes every time you go to the store and buy an object that costs $4 and you give them a $5 bill and they give you back a dollar, you're thinking that's correct because you're using your one, two, threes. So you see, even though you graduate beyond kindergarten, yet you never stop using the basic. And here's the point in 1 John chapter 2, I write unto you little children, because you have known the Father. Now, little children, a little child has a strong attachment to its parents. Our youngest grandchild, little Ellie, is, uh, I think she just turned uh, 10 months old. But you know that little girl, she loves to be with mommy and daddy. And every time they show up, her little face just beams. I mean, she sees them and knows them right offhand, and she's drawn to them. She wants to be with them. Her whole world is wrapped up in mommy and daddy. The fact is that early on, the little children are all about father and mother. And I want to suggest that early on in Christian experience, it's the Lord is our heavenly father that we're all caught up in. We're thinking about him, and we want to be with him. And we want to pray and talk to him. And we're completely depending upon him. You see, the daily life of a little child at that stage is defined more by trust than it is by understanding. And it's, it's very normal. It's very natural. But you know, there are some drawbacks to being a little child. <laughs> for little children are not yet strong enough for conflicts. You wouldn't want to put a little child on the front lines of the battle. You can take a little child to the air show and show them an F-16, but you wouldn't want them to get in the cockpit and fly a mission. You wouldn't want that, would you? Little children cannot bear to be separated from their parents. You take them and drop them off at school for the first time, and they really pitch a fit, don't they? I mean, as a rule. There may be an exception here and there, but as a rule, even if they enjoy it the first day or two, it's like a little adventure. They, after the first week, they say, no, I'm not going back. <laughs> I'm not going back. I'm staying home with you. That's where I belong. Now, you know, a doting parent knows that there needs to be some development. There needs to be some independence. They need experiences beyond them. But a wise parent also knows that you don't want that to come too soon. There's never been a perfect parent, by the way. I heard about a young preacher who preached a series on child rearing early in his ministry, right after he'd come out of college or out of school, and he said, I'm going to preach on child rearing. Of course, he didn't have any children by then, and his series was entitled, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Child Rearing. Well, a few years later, he had a few kids in tow, and he preached the series again, and he called it, uh, A Few Suggestions About Raising Children. And then after all of his kids were grown, he preached the series again at another church that he served, and he entitled it this time, Does Anyone Have Any Ideas? <laughs> now, it's a fact that it's not easy, and there is no perfect parent. That's why you need to pray. That's why you need to say, Lord, please work where I can't. My arms are too short. 
I don't always know the right things to say, and sometimes I make mistakes. That's when you need to be honest and forthright and say, listen, kids, I, I messed up. Sorry, I lost my cool. Sorry, but I'm a real person, and I need to ask God for forgiveness. And when you sin, you need to ask him for forgiveness. So let's both seek the Lord's help. But the point that I make is that that little child, they are attached to mom and dad, and so is the new believer. He loves God. He cries, Abba, Father. That's his entire worldview. Now, I'm not trying to distinguish between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in terms of separating them. We know the Trinity is three in one, and they're indivisible. It's like the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. The two natures in one person, they're not to be confounded or confused, but neither are they to be separated and divided. You're not to divide them, but at the same time, you're not to confuse them. And you say, I don't know how to do that. Well, just think of it like this. You believe in God. Jesus told his disciples, John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, he distinguished between faith in God the Father and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? That's the passage where he says, in my Father's house are many mansions, you know. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I think everybody who's born again knows God in his heart. But to know and understand who Jesus is and what he's done takes some education later. There's an instinctive knowledge in the heart of the child of God. Do you remember the story about Helen Keller when the Episcopal minister, Philip Bliss, preached to her? He told her about Jesus. Now, she was blind and deaf. Philip P. Bliss came and preached to her about Jesus, and she stopped him in the course of her, his sermon, and she said in her broken voice, I, I know him. I know him. I just didn't know his name. Something in her heart, she knew the Lord. Well, the Bible teaches us that they shall all be taught of God. Hebrews chapter 8 says that uh, God will write his laws in the heart and print them in their minds. And no man shall teach them, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. It doesn't matter whether you're small or aged, whether you don't have proper intelligence or not, God can teach the heart of every one of his children, and he will do that. And he does it directly. But I'll tell you, after you've been brought to know God in your heart so that there's a love for him, there's something inside you that's drawn to him magnetically, you need to be educated. You need your mind to be taught about the Trinity and about the fact that God's the creator and that Jesus is God who came in the fullness of the... You see, those are facts. That's gospel faith. There's a difference in the grace of faith and gospel faith. The late elder Cecil Darty used to explain it like this. He'd say that every child of God is given antecedent faith when they're born again. He meant by that a faith that is an advance to an informed and educated faith. But you know, we want our faith to be developed, don't we? The seed is put in the heart. There's an instinctive, through the divine nature, innate knowledge of God in the heart, but we want that knowledge to become informed and educated, don't we? So the little child knows the father, just like a little baby knows mom and dad. It's very infantile. Now, they don't know dad's social security number. 
They don't know what kind of car parents drove when they were dating back in the 1960s or 70s or 50s or whenever. They don't know where dad went to school and what position he played on the ball team. You see, those are details they will learn later, but they do know when daddy shows up or mama, suddenly it's, you know, I mean, they are riveted to dad. Mom, come get me. Let's go home. I want to be with you. That's very basic knowledge. I write unto you little children. But then as they get older, that little child becomes a young man. I write unto you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and that's the reason you have overcome the wicked one. Now I want to tell you the challenges of youth, adolescence, are tremendous. Have you ever thought about what a difficult path it is to navigate those teenage years? Because most teenagers are faced with several impactful decisions that will impact the rest of their lives, and it's kind of a scary time. For instance, what will I do with my life? What will be my career? And I have to tell you, if this helps any, that when I was a teenager, I didn't have it all figured out. In fact, I chose what I was going to do just based on what my dad did and a little experience that I'd had. And I could have been happy there, I, I suspect, and could have probably had a good career. But you know what's happened to me in my life? I've, I've met a few people who said, I've planned everything and everything's worked out just like I planned it. I have to tell you, I've just sort of morphed into the person I am today and where I am. I would have never dreamed I'd be where I'm at. I would have never dreamed I'd be devoting my time to pastoral ministry and to spreading and propagating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would have never dreamed that things would have fallen out to me like they have. But I've just sort of, as the Lord, I think in his providence, has just guided me along. And it's like, okay, here I am. <laughs> life is what happens to you while you're waiting for life to happen. You say, one day my ship's going to, you're there already. This is it. And uh, the, perhaps, the, perhaps there'll be a new chapter, a new development at some point. But don't miss the moment because you're pining away for something that hasn't happened yet. You say, well, okay, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. But, you know, young people, they, they face a decision, what will be my career? What are you going to study in college? Are you even going to go to college? Are you going to trade school? Are you going to get a job? You see, there's no one pattern that fits everybody. There are different paths, and you need to ask the question Saul of Tarsus asked after his Damascus Road experience, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? The most important question you can ask and I can ask in my life at every stage is, Lord, what do you want? What wouldst thou have me to do? Learn to ask that. Here's a promise for you. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So every day you say, Lord, I give this day to you and I ask you to guide me and direct me. And help me to do the things I need to do today. Help me to fulfill the responsibilities before me. And I'm going to depend on you to guide me the next step. It's not wrong to plan, you know, in advance to have a plan. Just be ready that that plan may have some twists and turns, you know, you hadn't expected. Very seldom is it a straight line from point A to point B. Usually the Lord leads us like this, doesn't he? <laughs> and you'll get there eventually. You'll get to where he wants you if you're putting him first in your life. Very important. But the young men reach a point where they are full of zeal, enthusiasm, and suddenly they have an interest in serving the Lord. 
Arthur Pink's lengthy writing on spiritual growth has a section on the stages of spiritual growth or development, practical sanctification, if you please, which is a process of growth. Now, eternal life is not a process. That's a gift of God's grace immediately. But spiritual growth, like physical growth, is a developmental process. There are various stages to it. And Pink, in his chapter on the stages of spiritual growth, gives four ways that young men differ from little children, from spiritual babes. First, he says there's a growing seriousness about daily discipleship and a desire to avoid sin. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And I love it when a young person reaches the point where they become serious enough about serving the Lord that they get just a little bit legalistic. Now, I know legalism can be a danger in life, but aren't you glad to see somebody that gets serious enough about serving the Lord that says, I'm going to go to church because it's church day. You say, well, you're going to be a legalist if you're not careful, but you see, there has to be some commitment. And I'm always a little bit encouraged when I see a young person get serious enough about serving the Lord that it's not just an add-on in their life, but it becomes their focus. They become laser-focused on it. And they say, I'm not going to sin. I'm tired of living that life. I'm tired of drinking with the boys or going to parties. I'm tired of listening to the foul language or I'm tired of yielding to sexual temptation. And Lord, help me to live like a believer, to turn my back on the deceiver and to live what I believe. You see, these are the young men. These are people when they're starting to get serious. And here's what you want to see at a church. You want to see the little ones reach a point where they, instead of being sporadic in their attendance and just keeping their distance, suddenly they've got their Bible with them. They're starting to take notes. And they're listening now. And they're going home and studying it. And they're memorizing scripture. And they're trying to talk to others about it. And I love to see that. And may I say that we've missed some of that in the Old Baptist Church over the years. And it may be our fault as parents that we've not done a better job of teaching and training them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But I love to see these young men. And you know what happens is they're ready as they learn the doctrine and learn what they believe, they're ready to debate. <laughs> so they go off to college and their professor says, you know, the, the people who believe the Bible are ignorant. These young men are ready to be a Christian apologist, to give a reason for their faith, ready to take him on, even though they might have their plow clean because he's so much more experienced and shrewd than they are yet. They're, they're ready to stand up and try to defend the integrity of the church, the Bible, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are studying the cults. They don't want to get caught up in the cults. You know, these deviations from historic and orthodox Christianity that are so popular around us, and there are so many of them. Usually a cult is defined by a charismatic leader that people just follow blindly. You know, they have such a charisma about them or they're so dominant that before you know it, people fall in line and they, they like being told what to do and how to go and... So they follow this charismatic leader, and before you know it, there's, he's unaccountable. The leadership is unaccountable. Nobody can question. They shut their congregation off from listening to anybody else, reading anything else. In other words, if you want to learn anything, you get it from us. You know, don't read the newspaper. Don't read any other religious literature. You just listen to us. That's a cult. And these young men that are coming along, they're studying about 
these unorthodox groups, and they're ready to take on the cults with their strange views on the Trinity. They say there is no Trinity. They're, both, they're all Unitarian. They all believe you need other literature besides the Bible in order to understand the truth. And they all deny, or most all of them deny, the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a lesser God. He's not really co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. These young men, as they grow, now the little children couldn't take on the cults. The little children couldn't argue the doctrines of grace against free will or Arminian theology. You know, the Arminian says that if you go to heaven, you've got to live right. You've got to repent. You've got to believe. You've got to be baptized. You've got to give your tithe. Outrun the devil till you die. And you know, these young men are ready to say, no, salvation's by grace. Man by nature is dead in sins. He can't do all of that until he's given spiritual life. You see, these young men are becoming solid defenders of the faith. Now, the drawback of a little child is they're not yet discerning. They're easily influenced, tossed to and fro by everyone of doctrine. And the drawback of the young men is it's easy for them to get proud. You know, he says, you're not to ordain a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation. To think they know more than they know. That's just typical of young people. And they tend to experiment with innovation. You know, there's a disregard for previous, there's this temptation to think that all the past was in error. They didn't know what I know. So we're going to reinvent the wheel and be innovative. So let's change the church. Instead of having these old hymns, let's have a few 7-Eleven songs. You know, the same seven words repeated 11 times over. <laughs> Some praise choruses. These young men. So there's a tendency for pride and innovation, and there's a tendency to be impatient with others who are not as devoted as they are to the church or to the cause of Christ. And there's a tendency to be disrespectful to the elders. Finally, he speaks to the fathers. I write unto you fathers, because twice, he says, you know him that is from the beginning. Now, these are the spiritually mature. And it doesn't always mean people who are elderly as far as chronology or age is concerned. These could be younger people who have just grown spiritually very consistently and pretty quickly. But here are people who've gone beyond sheer accuracy and doctrine. You've got to dot all your I's and cross all your T's in the doctrine. These people have gone beyond that. They haven't abandoned it, but they've moved beyond just winning a debate. And they've become so enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ that their Christian life is no longer simply defined by their theology, but by their adoration for and delight in the Savior. They have an ever-deepening fellowship and communion with Him. Like Paul said in Philippians 3.10, Oh, that I may know Him. Not just know His truth, know His doctrine, be able to argue for the accuracy of the doctrines of grace, but I want to know Him personally in an experiential way. You know, I've noticed as ministers got older and they've been preaching a long time that their preaching would get more streamlined and simple. I've known a lot of older preachers who love to preach on the 23rd Psalm. You say, well, that's just kindergarten, the 23rd Psalm. No, they learned that what really matters is my walk with the shepherd, you see. They learned that it's it's more than just an academic lesson, but it's something that's real in my life. I need God. I need Christ. I want to be like Him. I want to be with Him. 
So yes, I could argue the doctrines of grace against Arminianism. I could argue the Trinity against Unitarianism. I could win, I trust, or present some logical arguments for the deity of Christ against the Arian view or some of these uh, views that say he's just a good moral teacher, just a man, or the first created being. I could win those arguments. But you know, in the final analysis, what I really want is I just want to walk with God every day. He's everything to me. And I have a long experience, like Mary, of sitting at Jesus' feet and communing with him. It's never quite enough, but his presence is real to me every moment of the day. You know, you talk about the fathers, there's a stability about their lives and a wisdom that benefits the entire church. Now, you see, none of these groups look down on the other. A healthy church has all three. A healthy church has people at different levels of development. And none of us, it's not a competition. And we're not disrespecting each other because you're not at my level. Oh, praise God for the little ones. And praise God for the young, zealous men that are ready to debate the heretics. I love them. And that are committed to not falling into sin. They've overcome the devil. What a wonderful blessing they are. But praise God for the established, solid, mature, even-keeled, you know, the folks that are mature in Christ who just want to see him honored. And they can listen to a sermon on the phases of salvation and say amen. And they can listen to a sermon on the preciousness of Jesus and say amen. They can listen to a sermon on the different views of eschatology from the book of Revelation and say, thank you, brother. I enjoyed it. And they can listen to a sermon on how to handle your problems and troubles and how to keep going and trusting in the Lord in spite of the setbacks that you have and say, I agree with that. You see, there's a steadiness, a consistency. And the goal is that as they pass off the scene, you want some of these young men to gain the experience to replace them and more little children to come along so that the church is not a static body that just stagnates like a pond where there's no new moisture, but you want there to be a continual growth as people who are on the periphery become the core members of the church. There's development going on. There's growth. These fathers have already made it through the perils and pitfalls of youth. And the battles of midlife, they've earned the right to be heard and heeded, for they speak with the voice of experience. They have the heritage of a faithful testimony. They braved the dangers already of sexual temptation and fought the battles of raising a family. They've suffered the heartaches and setbacks of disappointment. They persevered beneath the load of life's burdens. They faithfully endured the pain of grief and the valleys of affliction. But you know what the danger is facing the fathers? Now, the little children's danger was they're not very discerning. They're easily swayed and influenced, tossed to and fro. The young men's danger is that they could become proud of what they know and judgmental of others that aren't as zealous as I am. The danger of the fathers, the older folks that are solid and stable, is it's easy to become weary and fatigued and to forget your first love, the one that you've known from the beginning. Revelation 2.4, you know, remember your first love. Hence, they need to regularly reflect on their early experience. If you're an older person here today and you've been walking with the Lord a long time, I encourage you to think back to your early days. You've known him that is from the beginning. I want you to think back to when you first believed. 
and then regain and sharpen your focus on Jesus Christ, the one that you loved, that saved you. And don't let the scar tissue of life's burdens rob you of the humble, childlike faith and devotion that marked your spirit when you first believed. I think what we see in 1 John chapter 2 are stages of spiritual development or spiritual growth. I don't know where you may find yourself today. By the way, none of us are accurate gauges of where we are. You think, well, I'm one of the fathers. Probably not. I'm probably one of the little children. It's easier for others to see how much you've grown than it is for you to see. It's like standing in front of the mirror saying, I'm not growing, I'm not growing, I'm not growing. If you were, you know, vertically challenged like I was in life, you know that experience. I'm not growing, I'm not growing. Then I'd go to a family reunion and Aunt Maybelle would say, Michael, how you've grown. <laughs> so I have. Hey, I've grown. Most other people can see whether you're growing or not more than you can. But let us be patient with others in the church. Because there will be little ones. We want them. We need them. There will be young men who are zealous and ready to take on the world. They're ready to go to a fire. And we say, okay, brother, have at it. I'm rooting for you. I'm cheering for you. Thank God for you. And there will be older folks who are tried and true and stable. Let's not disrespect any of them. Let's thank God for them, and let's try to grow personally. And pray that the Lord will help us to be a healthy church. Return.